You are Locked On Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to another episode of Locked On Ravens. Kevin Ostriker here with you and with me today as per Taco Tuesday tradition is Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. Spencer, another eventful week for Baltimore, seeing a guy walk out the door, another guy come in. How are you feeling? Feeling good. The Ravens ended up, you know, say what you want, but they got a very similar player to Michael Brockers for a lot cheaper as Brockers was going to have a $5 million cap hit in 2020, then back-to-back $12.5 million cap hits. I'm sure they would have been able to wiggle out of uh, most of the room in the third year, but it's a good situation. I think Wolf, you know, very similar fit. Neither guys are going to really propel the defense into, you know, being some different unit than they were last year necessarily, but good, definite, we not me guys. Derek Wolf has a big reputation of that for getting nitty gritty next to Von Miller. Um, I mean, there was a lot of times in Denver where Wolf would just literally hold the tackle that Von Miller was trying to get the edge around. He'd grab his jersey and hold him, which should have been a penalty and didn't get called that much. But um, that just goes to show he was willing to do that. He gets satisfaction at things like that. And uh, just kind of the way they look and kind of their personality. Derek Wolf kind of reminds me of George Kittle, just like as a person, kind of quirky and fun. And I think he'll fit in really well in Baltimore. So it's a good deal. Eric DaCosta, you know, making sure that the defensive line is solidified uh, so that they don't have to go into the draft with their hands tied. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to talk about Derek Wolf and what he brings to this team in just a few minutes here. But with this Michael Brocker situation, it felt eerily similar or at least a bit similar to the Ryan Grant situation where Baltimore signed the receiver to a four year, twenty nine million dollar deal. Then, of course, the physical doesn't go through. When you first heard the news that there were a little bit of a few concerns with Michael Brockers and his physical for Baltimore, what went through your mind? Well, for me personally, I know that <clears throat> you kind of were a little more worried. I, th- I thought they were saying it was the ankle. And I thought, you know, you know, an ankle that, you know, he was able to play and uh, seemed like they were so interested. It, it, I felt like they would have done some more investigative work. But, yeah, it ended up being very similar to Ryan Grant, where maybe it's a little combination of buyer's remorse mixed with concerns over depending on him as a guy who's, I mean, Ryan Grant was a little younger. I think he was about 25 when the Ravens had that ordeal go on. But Brockers, you know, being around 30 and, having a big guy on a bad ankle and putting all that cap money and $12.5 million in 2021 uh, invested into him and ended up being a little too tall of the tail. And, uh, you know, the Ravens decided to part ways. I didn't see it coming exactly when the news got leaked. But uh, as you were saying before we got on, Kevin, you know, once that gets leaked, it kind of gives cold feet to both parties, which makes a lot of sense. And uh, Brockers ended up getting more guaranteed money for a team that he's familiar with and played well in their scheme. So I think it ended up working out well for both parties, a win-win. Is there any situation where you think this actually does come back to bite Baltimore? Maybe if they were the ones kind of instancing where, all right, we're not going to sign him because we have concerns about this ankle. Do you think there's any situation where it does come back to bite them? Or do you think this is really a win all around? feels like a win all around. And Derek Wolf, which we'll get to, I mean, he's coming off of an injury as well. He's, he's always played in at least 11 games, but he had a dislocated elbow last year, taking a very low risk a uh, high reward situation where you can get, you know, potentially if let's say Derek Wolf is able to play 13, 14, 16 games, whatever it is, give you a nice solid starter that's willing to eat double teams, get in there and do work. And uh, it feels like, you know, Brockers isn't enough of an impact player where he is going to transcend a defense that the Ravens can really look back and regret it. 
But of course, you know, let's say Derek Wolf ends up going down at some point early in the season, week seven, whatever. Uh, and Brockers ends up turning out 16 games, which he's actually done, I believe, every year of his career. Um, then the Ravens will look back and say, of course, you know, maybe that could have gone differently. But they had so 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 much little risk tied to Derek Wolf that they can cut their losses with that. And it's not a big deal. Um, it just allows them to be able to draft freely, have another veteran pre- presence in the locker room with playoff experience, a Super Bowl ring uh, and continue, you know, getting some grown men across that defensive front that have experience. I mean, between Brandon Williams Calais Campbell and Derek Wolf, you're talking probably 13 playoff appearances, a Super Bowl ring, uh, some really nice playoff runs between them all, and they've been a part of some really good defenses. So it's very interesting to see how things will play out. Yeah, I think so too. And before we get into who Derek Wolf is, who he is as a player, for Eric DaCosta and this Baltimore Ravens front office, how impressed are you with how quickly and how effectively they recovered from losing Brockers? It seemed like they already had kind of planned their next move before really letting Brockers go and disengaging from that situation. And that is just Eric DaCosta always thinking ahead and being reluctant to tie himself down into a position where, uh, the, you know, players or other situations have more leverage than he's going to have. And it takes savvy for, for a guy who's, you know, barely over 365 days in the big boy chair uh, he obviously learned so much from Ozzie Newsom and still has his year and a way of handling things so that the team is always in a good position and never vulnerable. So I believe they handled it really well. And, you know, they're in talks with Mike Daniels now that was reported by Roto World. And that's a guy that the Ravens have flirted with in the past. So it's interesting to see how DaCosta just continues to be a man who seems to continuously have his ear to the stone and his ear to his phone. I mean, he it feels like every other free agent – the Ravens are, you know, rumored to be interested in, or there's some sort of talk or uh, weighing on bringing them in. So if there's one thing that Eric DaCosta is not, it is lazy. He is willing to make the calls, put in the work, have the conversations, do the face-to-face meetings. Obviously, he can't right now, but uh, putting himself in a position where he has a little bit of leeway in a lot of different situations. Yeah, definitely. And looking at Derek Wolf and who he is, Eric DaCosta in the press release that the Ravens put out said that he's the type of veteran player who fits their defense perfectly, and he's been on great teams, versatile, smart, talented, and they're just really happy that he's joining the organization. What did you think initially when the Ravens ended up pulling in Wolf to their roster? I thought that it was just really a very similar move to them pulling in Michael Brockers. When you go look at where the guys were drafted, it was 2012. Brockers went 14th overall. Derek Wolf went 36th overall. Um, they played a similar position coming out. They're in the same class. They fit a similar profile as very big edge coming out of college, a, a college defensive end type that ends up kicking inside. I think that Wolf kind of fits a little bit more of the five tech alignment more than Brockers, where Brockers might be a little bit more of a three tech. And Wolf is able to take on double teams. Whereas Brockers excelled at taking on double teams and holding that line of scrimmage and uh, really, you know, taking on a combo block so that Aaron Donald could go wreak havoc. And then you go look at Aaron Donald, a guy that Brockers has played next to. And Aaron Donald was very outspoken that a huge part of his success as a player is Brockers being willing to kind of play that more conservative style next to him where he's going to hold the line against the run and allow Donald to maybe overrun some plays or run past some plays and uh, be more explosive. And then we go talk about Derek Wolf. Derek Wolf would line up. I mean, when Von Miller really started to take off, 
Wolf was playing kind of an edge role, according to PFF, over the first three years of his career. And then a lot of the time, the Broncos started lining Derek Wolf up in the, you know, B gap with Von Miller playing outside out wide and rushing around the edge and Wolf doing some things to try and attack the tackle that would free up Von Miller to go rush. So two very similar guys that are willing to uh, do what it takes to succeed as a team, as a defense, as a unit and make the man beside them better. So I think that the Ravens basically, you know, end up getting a very similar player in the end for a lot less and with way less risk. And I'll take that 10 times out of 10. Yeah, I 10 times out of 10. Exactly. But as you look at how the Ravens have kind of shaped their defensive line after seeing Michael Pierce leave, trading Chris Warmly and adding Calais Campbell and Derek Wolf to the roster here, also bringing back Justin Ellis, another key piece. How do you think Baltimore is trying to shape their defensive line? What are they trying to get out of this? More versatility on the interior defensive line, guys who can play zero tech, one tech, three tech, five tech. I mean, Campbell and Wolf can do all of that. It allows Brandon Williams to uh, kick back down into that nose guard position, but he has so much experience in three tech, he can obviously do that. Um, So it's really versatility, and that's the name of the game for the Ravens defense, which is why when, you know, we're going to get talking about draft talk later, but when you go look at these mock drafts, so many of them say that, you know, a player like Zach Bond or a player like, you know, not that he was going to be there, but Isaiah Simmons, but all these versatile defenders, these positionless, quote unquote, positionless defenders like Xavier McKinney make sense for the Ravens because that's what they love. They love guys that uh, can be pulled all around different positions. And then looking from Pierce and Williams and Wormley, the Ravens have obviously wanted more length more mobile, you know, lateral ability, guys that are a little bit more lean, a little bit more long, can move, whereas they had the, you know, two fire hydrants in Pierce and Williams that they wanted to put on the same, uh, on the field at the same time a lot of times last year, and those guys were holding ground, but they're not really penetrating. So it looks like the Ravens want to get into making more impact plays, flash plays, turnover-worthy plays on defense instead of, you know, just holding ground. And one thing that, you know, Matt Miller kind of had said, the only thing he had heard coming out of the Ravens camp with his sources, a guy who's very well connected at Bleacher Report, is that Eric DaCosta simply wanted to build a pass rush that could maintain leads. And let's go ahead and look at the trio of Wormley, Williams, and Pierce. They had 893 pass rushing attempts uh, or snaps of pass rushing, and they only generated 47 players. There were 16 individual defensive interior linemen who generated more pressures themselves alone individually than the three of them combined. None of those players had more than 576 snaps. Aaron Donald was the one who had 576 snaps. Um, So now you go ahead and insert Campbell. You go ahead and insert Wolf and kick Brandon Williams down to that nose position again. And you've got two guys that are experienced at, you know, really pressuring the quarterback a little bit more and being a little bit more mobile. So they just want to get longer, leaner and more mobile up front. And that's what they went ahead and did. Yeah, I think, you know, if they add another edge player, say it's Clay Matthews or say it's a guy like Easter Gross Matos in the first round, that pass rush, it'll be able to hold some leads, let me tell you that. But we're going to head to our first break here. And when we return, we're going to be getting into some free agency talk and also just appreciating the staff that Baltimore has. So stay tuned for that and we will be right back. But before we do that... 
To get fit in 2020, you don't have to join a gym or pay a ton for overpriced fitness equipment. The best way to get in the best shape of your life is with Echelon. Go to echelonfit.com to discover their EX1 connected fitness bikes that offer high quality at-home cycling experiences at less than half the price of a Peloton. Go to echelonfit.com slash LockedOnNFL to learn about their limited time free Apple iPad and complete the details of this exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash LockedOnNFL. NFL echelonfit.com slash locked on NFL. Welcome back to the second segment of this Taco Tuesday Locked On Ravens episode. Kevin Oshreker still here with Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. And before we get into some free agency talk here, Spencer, looking at, back at some teams, maybe like the Los Angeles Chargers, the Houston Texans, teams who maybe don't have the best reputation for either treating players, you know, making moves. The Ravens, they don't have to deal with that. They've had such a long line of just successful business makers, successful decision makers, and successful coaches. When you look back at John Harbaugh and Ozzie Newsom and Eric DaCosta, I mean, what are you thankful about for having these guys on the Ravens? Steve Bashotti said a few years ago, maybe 2015, that he really loves the business model mixed with the loyalty and stability and tradition that the Pittsburgh Steelers had exhibited I mean, having, you know, three coaches in the last 50, 60, whatever it is, years dating all the way back through Chuck Noll to Bill Cowher to Mike Tomlin and continuity being a major factor. And it's something that so few coaches are afforded in the NFL where they get, you know, an initial four year contract and then they have, you know, a horrible year and then a mediocre year and then a mediocre year. And by that second, third year, there's so much pressure on them. They start trying to, you know make decisions that are best for the now and not for the long term. And the Los Angeles Rams are an example of that where, I mean, they really sold their soul to the devil in trading their entire hall of draft picks to get a defense and a few playmakers like Brandon cooks that could go to a super bowl, but it's not long-term stability. And that is why I feel sometimes that Baltimore Ravens fans are, have a little bit of a sense of entitlement or maybe a little bit spoiled uh, considering that, over the last throughout John Ten, Harbaugh's tenure, he's had one losing season. Um, but that's what fans have come to expect. That's stability, that competitiveness year over year. And I believe a huge, huge part of that is the continuity of the front office having a five year contingency plan where slowly Eric DaCosta builds and builds and builds and takes over for Ozzie Newsome. That doesn't happen in a lot of NFL front offices. There ends up being an entire o- overhaul Whereas we really saw the Baltimore Ravens go through the, you know, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18 years. How many players were on that team on the 2017 Ravens that are now? It's not a lot of guys. They did do an entire rebuild from head to toe of their roster while only playing in, I believe, one game that was meaningless in December. That was the game after they lost on Christmas Day to the Steelers. They ended up playing the Bengals. That is the only game in the last few years where the Ravens have been out of contention. And being able to do those two things to sustain competitive ability uh, and completely overhaul your roster just goes to show how stable the Ravens feel that they are, how calm, how collected, uh, and that they treat it as a business and a family at the same time. They have a good blend of those two things. And we were talking about it previously. I mean, even dating back to Brian Billick, who left a roster that was a locker room uh, that was truly a player's locker room, head to toe free will, whatever the players wanted. And they did have the benefit of having Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and, you know, Jonathan Ogden and Terrell Suggs and, you know, all these different guys. 
that allowed them to kind of operate that way. But then John Harbaugh comes in and, you know, things needed to be changed a little bit. Brian Billick maybe gave too loose of a leash and Harbaugh butted heads for a while. But over these past couple of years, you can see that John Harbaugh has turned this locker room into a really kind of almost like a high school team environment where winning is the main objective. They don't like selfish players. They don't like selfish players that have off the field issues. Uh, that might date back to a little PTSD from the Ray Rice situation and some other things. But the way that the Ravens function is they want guys that want to make the man next to them better, that want to win for the man next to them and do everything they can to be a, a team of, you know, not just 53, but including the entire organization, the front office, the practice squad, all those good things. So it's something that Baltimore fans really are fortunate to have and uh, watch and be proud of that the franchise is run that way. When you go look at a place like, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm tearing them down because I am, but the Detroit Lions who have had so much instability or even within the division, the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Bengals and people that, you know, are fans of the Baltimore Ravens haven't had to deal with that turnover at all and have been competitive for so long. So it's been a pleasure, a joy to watch and, feels like just now, this past year, we finally got a glimpse of the final product of a rebuild, and that was just the first year of it with so much youth on this roster. And it feels like DaCosta is, you know, modeling, you know, somewhere in between Pittsburgh and somewhere between New England where you can make a run for years and years and years and make sure that you're always competitive. And they've already done that to an extent, but now the highs will be a little bit high with the lows being higher. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, the soft rebuild is what I like to call it because you're right. The Ravens played in so many competitive games while you're essentially retooling almost the entire roster. And something that speaks to the continuity and just the joy that it seems veterans have for playing for the Ravens. And we mentioned and we talk about, you know, Tony Jefferson, the former Raven, actually was really big in getting Calais Campbell to Baltimore. It was said in a call that Calais Campbell took with a few Baltimore reporters that Tony Jefferson had a lot of influence, but also... The fact that he actually chose less money to go to Baltimore and play for a Super Bowl ring, but also that being around the coaches, being around the players at the Pro Bowl had an influence on him. And he thought that they were building something special in Baltimore. Now he's a part of that something special. Just how much does that culture in Baltimore influence players, influence veterans to have respect for the Ravens organization, but also want to play there themselves? It is hugely impactful because, I mean, just the way the free agent markets are worked by Baltimore, the fact that they never, ever, ever, ever really bring in that, you know, second contract monster contract that ties them down. They go seek the character, the guys, the Calais Campbells of the world who want to win a Super Bowl ring, who have already been paid, who they just want to win. And when you have so many guys alike in that sense that are fighting for a roster spot, you know, as a UDFA um, you know, that's what you want to see out of them. You want to see the competitive nature, the drive, the desire to win. And when you can get an entire locker room, an entire organization full of people that aren't selfish, that do just want to win, it ends up, you know, being appealing to players who go to these other organizations. And, you know, I mean, Clay's Campbell is coming out of a tumultuous situation in Jacksonville there. They were uh, one of the best defenses of the past decade. Uh, Blake Bortles is in an AFC championship game, putting the Patriots on the ropes one game away from the Super Bowl. And then suddenly two years later, they've completely imploded. And he sees teammates like Jalen Ramsey, as we discussed, the Los Angeles Rams. They've somewhat imploded while they don't really have a locker room issue. But just the way that they weren't able to, to stay competitive uh, past that Super Bowl loss. And, you know, looks like they're pretty hogtied down in a bad cap situation. So having that stability, knowing what you're walking into. And then another thing, you know, is the honesty. And that's something that Eric Weddle has preached about why he wanted to retire as a Raven and why he feels 
you know, so much respect. And I feel, I'm sure Tony Jefferson feels the same way because there's been this leak out of the Ravens locker room the past couple of years that they are so upfront and honest with, you know, telling you months in advance, we might be going in another direction. We don't want to necessarily, but we're weighing our options as opposed to, you know, everything's daisies and sunflowers and then cutting a guy out of nowhere ends up leaving a lot of animosity. And then that player who gets cut out of nowhere, is going to go tell his buddies that he played college football with, that he grew up with, that he played against that, you know, he's just become friends with or studied or trained in the off season with, he's going to go tell them that, you know, they treated me like crap and obviously players aren't going to want to go there. So when you do things the right way, you maintain honesty, you know, it sounds simple and something that is preached in, you know, elementary school, but uh, it's a lot more difficult in the adult world to maintain that. And as the Ravens have, it seems to have had a major impact in luring in free agents and uh, maintaining positive attitudes and getting those guys that do just want to win and don't want to deal with all the other BS. So they're bringing in winners and they're going to keep trying to turn this team into a real Super Bowl contender year after year. And it looks like they're in a good position to do so. I think so too. And culture is so important. We've talked about free agents who could potentially be, you know, positional fits and could fit the roster really well. But if the, of the guys that are still out there and that you know of, know a little bit about who they are, who do you think will be good culture fits and great locker room fits for this Baltimore Ravens team? As Baltimore likes to kind of bring in some cheap veterans on some deals, who do you think would be a great culture fit for this Ravens team? You look at a guy like Mike Daniels that they've been in talks with and his former teammate Clay Matthews, two guys that have good reputations for having strong character, for uh, playing through adversity and different situations with good pedigrees and uh, those are the two guys that really come to mind, as you said, and they just fit that bill. Those players who aren't seeking the monster deal as, uh, as 25, 26 year olds that haven't gotten that big payday. They're guys that are past their prime, but still able to play at a high level and uh, bring that veteran leadership and, and coach up some of the younger players and do things of the sort. So those two guys fit the bill. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of other players admire the Ravens locker room from afar. And maybe a guy like Taylor Gabriel, who's still out there, a wide receiver that's been with the Bears who was in a volatile situation and uh, with quarterbacks being yanked around and all this stuff about Mitch Trubisky, you know, players are want to get their opportunity. That's why he reminds me of a John Brown almost, although Brown had, you know, one bigger breakout season in Arizona than Gabriel's really had in his time in Chicago. But, you know, bringing those guys in that might be willing to take a one year contract with a good organization so that they can prove themselves and get that payday. And I look at a guy like Taylor Gabriel who has a similar skill set to John Brown. And I think that, he would be able to take the same path and maybe use the Ravens as a stepping stone to uh, go get a bigger contract, a multi-year contract, if he's able to prove himself. And, I mean, if you go to Baltimore, what do you know? If you're an offensive player, you're going to have to block. You're going to have to play as a football player. You're going to have to move around a lot. You're going to have to get in the nitty-gritty and uh, embrace the sport of football as a whole and not just your positional you know, prowess and the things that are you know, gl the glory and the touchdowns and all that good stuff uh, to be part of a competitive, hard-hitting, hard-nosed team. And if that's not your M.O., then you probably don't want to end up in Baltimore. Exactly. The culture fit is just in almost as important as the actual on-field fit. If you don't get a guy who chills, if you don't get a guy who is working towards that same goal, you know, it can provide you know, a breach in the locker room. I mean, the Ravens have been rarely known for things like that. You look at the Earl Thomas, Brandon Williams, I guess, spat 
in week four after that loss. And that's something that the Ravens have almost barely ever seen in many, many years. It seems like that's something that you don't hear alongside the Baltimore Ravens name the brand. So the Ravens wanting to bring in guys who are looking for that one common goal, who can fit in with their guys and are a part of that fun-loving culture is something that's really important to them. But we're going to head to our final break now. And when we return, we're going to be getting into some draft talk. So stay tuned and we will be back soon. Welcome back to the final segment of this Locked on Ravens episode. Kevin Allshack is still here with Spencer Schultz. And as we get into draft talk here, Spencer, looking at the Ravens and their defensive line, they now have a pretty set defensive line with the addition of Derek Wolfer in talks with Mike Daniels, as you mentioned as well. We talked last week about how the Ravens could maybe go back to selecting a defensive lineman in the first, second rounds with Brockers potentially not being on the roster and now him actually not being there. Does that need kind of get pushed back a bit with the addition of Wolf and even the talks with Mike Daniels? Yeah, it allows the Ravens to not be hogtied. Like I said earlier, they are in a position where they can do what the, you know, the classic phrase you hear coming out of the Baltimore Ravens locker room in the Ozzie Newsom way, and that's drafting the best player available. And it could still be a defensive lineman. Uh, the only position that it really couldn't be is a quarterback, because that just obviously wouldn't make sense at this point. But anything is fair game, and it allows them to you know draft a running back. If you know, let's say they view DeAndre Swift as the seventh player in this draft, and he's sitting there at 28, maybe they end up doing something like that. Uh, receiver, an offensive lineman, anywhere they can go, anywhere get talent and draft talent, as opposed to being hogtied to drafting for need and passing up, you know. And that's something that I think the Ravens did to an extent uh, in the 2018 draft. Originally, you, you see the Hayden Hurst trade and how that's panned out. And they kind of were able to recoup that second round pick. And Hurst was a great player, but they kind of didn't end up giving him enough usage and uh, things for a first round tight end pick as first round tight ends don't often, you know, pan out to be that, all that great. But they passed on a Derwin James. They passed on a Calvin Ridley. And those are two guys that the Ravens would really love to have instead of that 55 overall pick right now. Um, and I think that, you know, they wanted to, they tra- drafted a guy for now. They drafted a tight end for Joe Flacco. Uh, and they end up, you know, laying back and getting Lamar Jackson. And, you know, they ended up playing that really cool and maybe understanding and having their ears in some different conversations and knowing that Lamar Jackson was going to be there at the end of the first round. But uh, when you were able to go draft the Derwin James, draft the Calvin Ridley, draft that top talent, uh, that might not be at a burning need, you know, maybe they end up taking a cornerback. Maybe it's uh, Jeff Gladney, Christian Fulton, some of those guys, but whatever it is, draft the player that you have highest on your board instead of drafting for need. It just makes sense. And that's how you end up getting a talented roster. Yeah, Baltimore's done that multiple times. I mean, countless times, and it's has served them well as they build their roster, not only for the year that's ahead for them, but for the years to come in the future. But Spencer, you mentioned the Ravens potentially, you know, if DeAndre Swift is available or someone of that nature, Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins. If the Ravens do select a running back in the first or second round, what do you think their plan is going to be with the other guys on the roster as well as that high pick to get them all involved? I mean, there are plenty of carries to go around. And the thing is, you have Lamar Jackson, who is, by all purposes, maybe the most effective uh, electric runner in the NFL right now. But you don't want him being 20. You know, the, the ideal plan is that Lamar Jackson plays out, does as well as he possibly can, continues to grow through his rookie contract. You end up paying him a boatload of money to be the face of the franchise, the guy who puts asses in the seats and does all that good stuff and keeps you winning. But you don't want him to be 26, 27 years old carrying the ball 150 times. Um, you can say whatever you want, but when you, as a quarterback, but when you just even go look at running backs 
which is a comparison that people get salty about, but running backs wear down over time for the most part, unless their name's Adrian Peterson, you know, Marshawn Lynch or a couple of other guys. So the idea is to kind of phase out some of those read option design plays and not be running Jackson between the tackles eventually. And as he progresses and really rounds out into an even more complete passer, which is a scary thought, but there's going to be more mouths to feed. Uh, Mark Ingram did get injured at the end of last year. He's been injured a couple of times. He is 30 years old. He's going to play at a high level again if he's healthy, but you know, they might not want to have Mark Ingram in 2021. So having a guy like DeAndre Swift or maybe Jonathan Taylor, I would probably go Swift in that situation. But having those guys is another bell cow. And first round running backs do perform pretty damn well when you go look at it. While they might not end up making a difference in the win and loss column, they do get a lot of volume and do really well. I mean, Josh Jacobs did fantastic last year, had votes for offensive player, offensive rookie of the year. Uh, a guy that, you know, didn't even have a ton of run at Bama, but ended up being an awesome player and is going to be an awesome player again next year. So a running back, I wouldn't entirely count out as, you know, they love to run the football. Greg Roman's the offensive coordinator for the foreseeable future coming off winning executive or assistant coach of the year. And uh, it kind of makes sense. And, you know, Daniel Jeremiah was a guy that, you know, I think I might've talked about on this, but it ends up making sense. There are a lot of mouths to feed. They like to run the football and, I mean, Justice Hill is a guy that gets forgotten a little bit in this equation, but Gus Edwards is uh, not the most effective pass-catching running back. While he is awesome between the tackles and awesome as a ball carrier and is improving in that facet, so they want to have multiple running backs. They want to have a stable of guys that are good to go so that they can keep pushing the ball down the field and running the football at the same time. So uh, running back could make sense. I wouldn't be completely shocked, but uh, I would be a little concerned just because, you know, the devaluation of running backs – uh, has kind of happened and you can go find guys in the second and third round that are damn effective as well but i wouldn't put it past them and finally here is we talk about a position that i want to kind of focus in on for a second the interior offensive line is a position where the ravens lost marshall yonda they cut james hurst so now there's a little bit of a vacancy there the ravens do have ben powers who was kind of groomed for a year i'll say and i think it's in strong consideration to start at that right guard position they also have bradley bozeman on the left side but as they look towards the draft, what do you think their plan is? Do you think they will go with an offensive lineman earlier? It certainly is a possibility. But then do you see them maybe drafting two, even three interior guys? I would say that two would make a lot of sense. And I would also be very surprised if the Ravens walked past that maybe 92nd pick in the third round. Uh, that point without drafting a guy who can play inside. Um, I think the guy who might end up falling in the sweet spot who kind of reminds me in a way of Eric McCoy last year, a guy who was really mobile, could move, uh, didn't get a ton of buzz, but was a good athlete, had good tape, is Jonah Jackson, the guard out of Ohio State. Uh, When you go watch his tape, he reminds you, does some of the things that Marshall Yonda did. He's a very patient interior player. He waits for the kind of lineman to make his move first and commit before countering as more of a finesse into power as opposed to power first and playing downhill especially in the passing game he looks for work he keeps his head on a swivel if he doesn't have a guy rushing his gap he will go lay someone out uh something you saw him do a ton he transferred from Rutgers, was a standout at Rutgers, ends up joining ohio state and being you know a completely dominant guard and just really overall solid feels like he's very scheme versatile uh which the ravens are a very very fluid scheme offense especially as a rushing offense between the gap scheme powers with the pulling guards versus the zone scheme they do both very frequently and they change it week to week depending on the defense that they're playing so having a guy that is versatile is imperative 
And I think that Jonah Jackson would be a perfect fit. Uh, I think Eric McCoy went right around that 55 range, I believe maybe 48, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that, I might be wrong on that one, but uh, Jonah Jackson feels a lot like him, a guy who is going to come in and be able to plug and play and start as a rookie. And then you look back and say, why the hell did this guy go in the first round? Uh, so I feel that that is a guy. And then there's a lot of talk about Cesar Ruiz out of Michigan, but I feel like he might go ahead of 28. He is the number one interior offensive lineman. And usually one of them comes off the board before then. Um, so I'd be a little surprised to see Ruiz at 28, but if he's there at 28, that's the pick. Eric DaCosta has also stated that they want to draft an offensive lineman every single year, no matter what. They love taking swings at that. Uh, and then you go back and listen to the press conference where Eric DaCosta and Ozzie Newsom kind of spoke about drafting Marshall Yonda, and they basically wanted to take him earlier. And we're like, no, he has no buzz, no hype, nothing going on this guy. The rumor mill's quiet on him. And the room erupted in high fives and cheers and hell yeahs when they were able to take him in the third round because they were like, we just got ourselves an immediate awesome player in the third round. And they knew it. So the Ravens, you know, really do their homework in the trenches. They've made a living in those middle rounds, drafting offensive linemen and defensive linemen. And uh, I would be shocked to see them not come out of this draft with a capable starter on the offensive line position. Yonda just leaves too big of a hole to not address it in free agency, which would be a little atypical of the Ravens and then not address it in the draft. So uh, like you said, you know, I would expect them to come out with one definitely. And if not two guys that can come in there and play. Yeah, I think so too. And just, you know, the Marshall Yana story just speaks to just how important it is for Baltimore to understand not only what they're wanting to do, but also what other teams around them want to do. You know, they kind of made that smoke screen with Lamar Jackson. That was a big story is the details are coming out about just how the Ravens got him at pick 32. And also Eric McCoy was the 48th overall pick, hit it right on the head, Spencer. But that's all I have for you today. Thank you for coming on the show. And once again, when we talk next week, just one week closer to the draft and all the excitement that it entails. I am very excited. Uh, I think that this draft could be very interesting if it is done. It looks like it's going to be done kind of remotely in many ways and kind of from home. Um, but I think that guys like Daniel Jeremiah, who are probably going to end up covering the draft, they're able to really sit home and do their homework right now and really get a good understanding for these players. So I think the player analysis and kind of the uh, conversation of listening to the draft on TV, obviously everyone's going to be, there's no sports on. What are we looking forward to the damn NFL draft? Because we know it's coming. Uh, so I think this is going to be very fun and interesting in a way, in a very unique situation. And uh, I implore everyone to enjoy Taco Tuesday as you are looking for things to do while you're at home with your loved ones. Have some tacos on Tuesday. It is a way of life. It is fun. So thank you for having me on, Kevin, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Yes, definitely. Enjoy the tacos. And when we get back tomorrow, we're going to be getting into even more Ravens talk. Stay tuned, and I will see you tomorrow.